0: On Sunday, 15th of August, 2021, after an almost 20-year-long absence, the Taliban recaptured the Afghan capital city of Kabul. As the US-led coalition withdrew, the Taliban regrouped and began expanding outward once again. Facing little opposition from the Afghan National Army that had been trained and equipped by Western forces, the Taliban only grew bolder and began an almost blitzkrieg-style campaign to retake villages, towns, cities, and then entire provinces until they were once again in near total control of a land that is seemingly known only bloodshed for the better part of 50 years. The story of the Taliban is the story of Afghanistan in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, cloaked in Islamic ideology that many of the most prominent Muslim countries have moved on from, Afghanistan under the Taliban was always the land that resisted the influence of outsiders with tenacity, ferocity, and always in blood. The attempts by the great powers of the world to bring Afghanistan more in line culturally with the wider world perspective, particularly concerning the treatment of women and the application of science and technology, has presented an arena where the tools of the modern world waged war with the determination of the old. Yet almost every foreign power that has gotten involved with Afghanistan has ultimately failed in its mission there, leading Afghanistan to become known as the Graveyard of Empires. In this, the first part of a two-part special, we are going to examine the modern history of Afghanistan, investigate the origins and ideology of the Taliban, and chart their rise, fall, and return to power. This is the story of the Taliban. Welcome to Wars of the World. In the 19th century, the land known today as Afghanistan was caught in between the lion and the bear, as it served as a boundary between the Russian empire in the north and the British empire, which controlled British India, modern day Pakistan, in the south. This imperial rivalry became known as the great game. Of the two, Britain was the more aggressive when it came to controlling the country, having fought two major conflicts over control of the territory, the second of which saw Afghan land ceded to Britain and a loss of control over the handling of its foreign affairs, Afghanistan being a landlocked country and therefore reliant on the good graces of its neighbors to allow the passage of diplomats and traders. By the end of the 19th century, Afghanistan had become a client nation of Britain receiving British weapons, goods, and money in exchange for helping keep the rival Russian empire at bay. However, the establishment of the Durand Line, which finally clearly defined Afghanistan's borders, saw many tribes, such as the Pashtun people, divided between Afghanistan and India. Naturally, the Pashtuns refused to accept this line, having lived on the land for hundreds of years. And so nomadic tribes often crossed the new border as they always had done. By the second decade of the 20th century, Afghanistan was a country of two worlds with the old tribal ways existing in the countryside, while in the cities such as the capital, Kabul, more modern concepts of statehood under King Habibullah flourished. Afghanistan's ruling class were now tired of having to live under the insult of being a puppet of the British and demanded full independence. It would not be until after Habibullah was assassinated by his son Amanullah, who then took the throne from his elder brother after having reigned for just one week, that Afghanistan declared its independence. This sparked the third Anglo-Afghan war beginning on May 6, 1919, which would last two years after which Afghanistan earned its independence. However, peace did not come to Afghanistan for Amanullah, who wanted to have total rule over his kingdom. And that meant shifting power away from tribal and religious leaders who naturally opposed such a move. Thus, throughout his short reign, Amanullah fought a series of uprisings opposed to his reforms, even when those reforms benefited the people, such as giving ordinary Afghans greater levels of education and the right to own land. Amanullah was toppled from power in 1929, and after a brief power struggle, Nadir Khan would emerge victorious and seize the throne. Khan allowed the tribal leaders to retain much of their power, but he still had to contend with dissent amongst some ethnic communities. And in 1933, he was assassinated and succeeded by his son, Zahir. Zahir's reign would last significantly longer than his father's, but was marked by ideological upheaval spurred on by his uncles, who were successive prime ministers in his government. In 1955, Zahir's cousin Dawood took the role of prime minister, and he convinced the king to turn to the Soviet Union for military aid. Then in 1963, Zahir carried out his boldest move yet when he tried to develop a constitutional monarchy under the policy of the New Democracy, which lasted from 1964 to 1973. During this time, intellectuals enjoyed greater freedom while women began to enter the workplace and government. However, despite the name, Legislation governing the establishment of political parties in Afghanistan failed to materialize. In 1973, Dawood led a coup against Sahir, supported by the military and the Soviet Union, and he took effective control of the government. Under Daoud, the country again underwent sweeping reforms that aimed to create a modern socialist Islamic state. In the cities, men and women discarded their traditional robes and began wearing Western-style clothing, as they studied and worked together for the first time, much to the disdain of the more conservative elements of Afghan society. Just five years after taking power, Dawood lost it all when he faced his own coup on April 27th, 1978, at the hands of the Communist Afghanistan's People's Democratic Party, or APDA, who crucially inspired the military to join them. In the wake of the coup, the APDA then found itself torn on what to do now it had the power and two factions arose within its ranks. In the end, the faction led by Nur Mohamed Taraki emerged victorious and expelled those in the party who would not follow him. Taraki instigated even more radical reforms for Afghanistan, imposing a strict socialist regime supported by the neighboring Soviet Union. As this was the height of the Cold War between East and West, the United States were deeply troubled by the links between Taraki's government and the Soviets and what this would mean for the region. And so when local leaders in Afghanistan opposed Taraki's reforms, they were quietly supported by the United States with money and weapons. Recognizing that Taraki's socialist policies often clashed with traditional Islamic norms in Afghanistan, the US encouraged further resistance claiming that the communists at home and abroad were godless and determined to stamp out Islam. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union, while supporting of Taraki, recognized that he was moving too quickly and implored him to slow his reforms in order to address the growing resentment from the tribal leaders. Taraki refused and was soon facing uprisings, not only from the countryside, but from within his own military, who helped him seize power. In September of 1979, Afghanistan was on the verge of a full-blown civil war when Taraki was assassinated by a rival in the APDA by the name of Hafizullah Amin, who took the reins of power. Amin entered into negotiations with the United States for assistance in restoring order, which of course pleased Washington, but horrified Moscow. If Afghanistan became an American ally, then American forces could be based on the Soviet Union's southern borders, a potentially serious destabilizing factor in the ongoing Cold War. Thus, to prevent this, on Christmas Eve, 1979, to the world's shock, Soviet troops crossed the border into Afghanistan, supported by large numbers of tanks, armored personnel carriers, and combat aircraft. Soviet leader Brezhnev told the world that they had been invited into the country to help restore order, but in reality, they were there to maintain their grip on the land and keep the Americans out. During the course of the invasion, Amin was killed by Soviet troops and his government was replaced by one led by Babrik Karmel, who was seen as more compliant with Soviet wishes. However, this was no quick fix solution for the Soviets who very quickly found themselves combating tribes and factions opposed to their influence, with many Afghans viewing them as an army of crusaders come to destroy their faith. The Soviets were therefore forced to settle into a bloody, brutal, and ongoing military campaign to hold the country. International condemnation of the Soviet invasion was quick and especially strong in the US and UK. In a phone call between the recently elected British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and US President Jimmy Carter on the afternoon of the invasion, Carter outlined the US position by saying, quote, "'First of all, we regard the Soviet intervention "'in Afghanistan as an extremely grave development. "'They have, in effect, changed a proper nation "'into a puppet nation, "'and I think it will have profound strategic consequences "'on the stability of that entire region. "'Secondly, I think it is essential that we make this action as politically costly as possible to the Soviet Union. I don't think we can afford to let them get away with this with impunity." The Western powers thus imposed economic sanctions on the Soviet Union, and in 1980, the UK and US boycotted the Moscow Olympic Games, although athletes from both nations still competed independently. However, it would not be long before the West took a more active role in supporting anti-communist Afghan forces against the Soviets. Initially, Western intelligence agencies such as the CIA and MI6 acquired weapons such as assault rifles, and then had them delivered to the groups fighting the Soviets via Pakistan. And over time, this aid would grow. In Afghanistan, Soviet forces very quickly seized control of the major population centers, and the KGB were soon rounding up anyone opposed to their intervention. However, given the more nomadic nature of many of the more rural communities, they soon found it was difficult to locate them, as they were almost always on the move or hiding away in caves and mountains, making planning attacks against them extremely difficult. The Soviet position was made all the more complicated by the lack of suitable maps of Afghanistan, many of which had inaccuracies of up to several miles. Thus, the Soviet Air Force began a massive aerial survey operation using aircraft such as the Antonov An-30 to draw the most detailed maps of Afghanistan ever made by that point in history. On the ground, Soviet troops used tactics devised for combating NATO in Western Europe but obviously these were hopelessly ineffective against a guerrilla force who knew their terrain and only engaged in battle on their terms. Roads and tracks were especially deadly to Soviet troops and were almost never traversed in unarmored vehicles because to do so was to invite death. Soviet propaganda often depicted their soldiers in Afghanistan digging wells and building schools, but the reality was very different. Morale amongst their number was quickly sapped as conscripts found themselves taken out of their hometowns and thrust into an almost alien world, fighting a war for which there appeared no end in sight. Like amongst many American soldiers in a similar predicament during the height of the Vietnam War, the Soviet soldiers often took to alcohol and drugs to help them cope. And this inevitably led to a breakdown in discipline amongst many units. Upon the Soviet invasion, much of the resistance came from local tribesmen armed with whatever weapons they had retained after years of infighting between various groups and factions. Incredibly, many of them were still armed with bolt action rifles that could be traced back to 1919 and the last Anglo-Afghan war, and which had been handed down from father to son. Throughout Afghanistan's turbulent history, it was these factions each acting in their own interest that prevented any single leader from truly claiming to have total control over the country. This should have aided the Soviets and the Afghan communists for it meant that they weren't fighting a single harmonious resistance movement. However, the fight against the Soviets was different. While they differed on key points, the one thing all tribes all had in common was that they were all of the Islamic faith and facing the godless communists who were trying to stampede over their country and religion meant that the Afghan tribes were united in a common cause. While some worked together forming much larger resistance cells, others who couldn't bear to work with traditional enemies simply declared a ceasefire between them while they focused on fighting the Soviet invaders. Collectively, the Afghan resistance became known as the Mujahideen, meaning those who fight on behalf of the Muslim faith. For those in the region and in the West who had a vested interest in defeating the Soviets in Afghanistan, the Mujahideen were seen as freedom fighters and symbolized the ongoing struggle against global communism. This being portrayed in books and movies. This had the double impact of helping to encourage the people of the West to support moves to arm and finance them, while at the same time, keeping opinion firmly against Moscow. The US and UK governments worked closely with Pakistan to ship increasingly heavier weapons into Afghanistan and train Mujahideen forces in how to operate them to combat the Soviet's technological edge. Then in 1985, the Mujahideen would acquire the weapon that would come to define their fight against the Soviets. Anti-Soviet lobbyists in the United States, such as the Free the Eagle Group, were increasingly frustrated with what they saw as a rather paltry effort to support the mujahideen against the communists. They argued the CIA should start importing more advanced weapons into the fight to help counter the Soviets' technological advantage, and in particular, to counter their powerful attack helicopters. Thus, after coordinating with Pakistani officials, the CIA began training and equipping the Mujahideen with the FM-92 Stinger man-made portable air defense system. The impact of this weapon was immediate and devastating. No longer did the Mujahideen always hide from Soviet aircraft, but now they were turning and fighting them directly. It was a short, sharp shock to the Soviet air crews, who initially had little defense against the small surface-to-air missile, although later decoy flares were used to help confuse its infrared seeker, but there were no guarantees these would work. Figures on just how many stingers were provided to the Mujahideen and how many aircraft they brought down continue to be contested. Sources vary from just 500 all the way up to around 2000, while they are credited with destroying 269 Soviet aircraft, ranging from small helicopters to fast jets and large transport planes. Fear of this lethal weapon also made Soviet pilots more cautious in their attacks, often dropping bombs from higher altitudes where they were less accurate. By the late 1980s, almost a billion dollars worth of aid was being put into Afghanistan to support the Mujahideen, while the war was costing the Soviets around 5 billion, a massively damaging figure at a time when the Soviet Union's economy was beginning to collapse. One of the most prominent groups receiving US aid was led by Gulbuddin Hekmatia, who was described in a CIA report as one of the most vicious of the Mujahideen leaders. Hekmatia waged a campaign of torture and murder against the Soviet forces and their Afghan allies. But toward the end of the conflict, he also used his CIA support to combat rival Mujahideen groups. These factors alarmed the Americans and Pakistanis who warned him there would be grave consequences if he continued. He was also staunchly anti-Western, but this didn't matter to the CIA in the 80s who needed him to fight the Soviets. Thus, when his men were implicated in the murder of a British cameraman and a French aid worker, as well as stealing aid destined for Afghan villagers, he still received aid, even when he refused to punish the culprits. However, it was not just locals who fought with the Mujahideen. Thousands of foreign fighters filled their ranks, fighting what they saw as a jihad or holy war against the Soviets. One of the most important in the history of Afghanistan was Osama bin Laden. Coming from a rich Saudi family and believing that Islam was to be the dominant faith on earth, bin Laden established a network of offices around the world for recruiting fighters and used his wealth and influence to transport them to Afghanistan to fight. Again, Western intelligence agencies were aware of bin Laden's anti-Western position, but did little to oppose him while he was fighting the Soviets. Eventually, bin Laden formed Al-Qaeda, meaning the base, and they proved to be a prominent and powerful force in the mujahideen in the latter stages of the war, and still supported by the West. For the Soviet soldiers pitted against them, The Mujahideen were an elusive and terrifying enemy. They almost never held prisoners for long and a brutal and painful death would follow if a Soviet soldier was unfortunate enough to be taken alive. The Mujahideen understood terror and Soviet soldiers came home from the war with stories of their captured comrades having their arms and legs hacked off and the bloody torso being hurled in front of convoys or outposts to unnerve the troops. Captured pilots had an especially hard time at the hands of the Mujahideen, for it was the Soviet air power that had inflicted some of the heaviest damage upon them. Some Mujahideen groups attempted to force prisoners to convert to Islam so they could stand trial in an Islamic court, but this rarely worked, and so they were inevitably killed. In response, the Soviet soldiers unleashed their own terror on anyone who they suspected to be in support of the Mujahideen civilians were beaten and killed often on the whims of the soldiers some of who confessed after the war that they had killed people just to see what it felt like in at least one harrowing case an afghan woman was dragged into a helicopter and gang raped by the troops inside as it flew over the countryside before she was thrown to her death as the 1980s entered its last quarter afghanistan was drowning in blood and the soviet people had lost patience again Eerily echoing the American withdrawal in Vietnam, new Soviet Premier Gorbachev began to focus his military's efforts on training and preparing the Afghan government forces to take over the lead in defending communism in Afghanistan. In 1987, Dr. Mohammad Najibullah was appointed the new president, although he was little more than a puppet to Moscow, and soon the drawdown of Soviet forces began. The withdrawal was completed in February of 1989 when Soviet General Boris Gromov walked across the bridge over the Amu Darya River into the Soviet Union. He was the last Soviet soldier to leave Afghanistan. The war had cost the Soviet Union some 14,000 lives, with many more left disabled from injuries sustained in the fighting. The Soviets returning from Afghanistan didn't get the hero's welcome they were hoping for, instead arriving home to a country that was breaking apart and within two years would exist no more. However, there was no celebration for the Mujahideen either. Not only were an estimated 1.5 million Afghan people dead, but 5 million people were left disabled, and 5 million more were displaced in refugee camps in Pakistan. As if enough blood had not already been shed, the inevitable then happened. With no Soviet army to fight, the many factions returned to pursuing old grudges, and tore each other to pieces. What was left of Najibullah's forces could do very little to stem the fighting as civil war erupted. There were four primary factions all vying for power by 1992, including one led by Hekmatia, as well as numerous smaller but less effectual ones, and of course, the many numbers of bandits who sprung up looking to take advantage of the chaos. With his benefactors in Moscow now gone, in April 1992, Najibullah was forced to resign and a new seven-man council under the stewardship of Abdul Rahim Hatef was established to rule the new Islamic State of Afghanistan. But this failed to keep peace, even with the restoration of Islamic law. In June, Burhanuddin Rabbani, the leader of one of the main factions dubbed the Islamic Association, was appointed president. But Hegmatia demanded that power be shared with him, and forces loyal to both were soon clashing in the streets of Kabul. Rabbani agreed to Hekmatia's terms and in March 1993, appointed him as prime minister. The country nevertheless continued on its downward spiral. Nearly every major road was littered with gangs of bandits who stopped vehicles and demanded tolls in order to be allowed to pass through safely. Sometimes these gangs were only a few miles apart, making it all but impossible for the poverty-stricken Afghans to travel outside of their own communities, Adding to this, the warlords continued vying for power and influence over one another and the fighting became ceaseless. Kabul was almost destroyed in the violence and hundreds of thousands of refugees, many with disabilities from the Soviet occupation, were forced out into the countryside where bandits or simple starvation awaited them. There seemed to be no end to the suffering. It was at this point that a new faction arose and one that would not only have significant consequences for Afghanistan, but the entire world. Their name was the Taliban. The exact origin of the group that would come to be known as the Taliban is difficult to pinpoint exactly, but most agree that its earliest formation as we know it today took place sometime in 1994. Prior to that, the nucleus of the organization can be traced back to the Pashtun Mujahideen groups that emerged during the war with the Soviets. The founding members had all studied at ultra conservative Islamic schools under hardline tutors in Afghanistan and Pakistan, who instilled upon them the strictest interpretations of Islamic law and teachings. As such, the founding members decided to adapt the Pashtun word for students as their name, which became Taliban. Despite this title, many of them were seasoned veterans of the war with the Soviets and had the scars to show it. Abdul Majid, for example, who would later serve as the mayor of Kabul, had lost a leg and two fingers, while Nuruddin Tarabi, Mohammed Gauss, and Mullah Mohammed Omar had all lost one eye. These men would form the inner circle of the Taliban upper echelon, and this would lead author Ahmed Rashid to describe the Taliban leadership as the most disabled in the world. Interviewed before 2001 by Rashid, Muhammad Gauss explained the sentiment amongst the Taliban in those very early days. Quote, we would sit for a long time to discuss how we could change the terrible situation. Before we started, we had only a vague idea what to do and we thought we would fail, but we believed we were working with Allah and his pupils. Stemming from their strict teachings, they believed unquestioningly in their extreme interpretation of Sharia law, the set of rules laid out by the Quran and the teachings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad for how Muslims should live their lives. However, the key word here is interpretation for as Professor Akbar Ahmed, the chair of Islamic studies at American University in Washington DC explained in August, 2021, Sharia means literally the path, which is clearly defined by the Quran. You have over the centuries, very established Islamic scholars, some with one bent, some with another. For example, the Shia Muslim scholars may have a slightly different interpretation of the same thing. Scholars in Indonesia, further to the East, may have a slightly different interpretation. All of these are adjusted in the context of the culture. The Taliban primarily recruited from the same ultra-conservative schools that its leaders had attended, and within just a few months, had amassed some 12,000 followers under the charge of Mullah Muhammad Omar. According to many in the Taliban, Omar was sent a vision of a woman who told him that he should rise up and end the chaos in Afghanistan, and that Allah would guide him to victory. Second to Omar was Mullah Muhammad Hassan, who like Tarabi, had lost a leg in the fighting with the Soviets. And as such, he sported a wooden replacement. Hassan was one of the older members of the Taliban and had been aware of Omar during the Soviet occupation, but they had been in different regional Mujahideen groups. So it was not until after the Soviets pulled out that they began working together. Two factors helped fuel support for the Taliban with the rural populations of Afghanistan. Firstly, unlike in many of the cities which had been controlled by the various Afghanistan governments at that point, the rural communities rarely looked outside of their own villages and certainly not beyond the country's borders, for it simply did not concern them. Therefore, they clung to their older, stricter interpretations of Sharia law, longer than the more metropolitan populations, especially when it concerned the treatment of women who were denied education and careers for it was not necessary in their roles as wives, mothers, and homemakers. Therefore, they found a kinship with the Taliban culturally. Secondly, their main interaction with outsiders came in the form of the Soviet army imposing their will upon them, and at times killing their people, either deliberately or unintentionally, in their fight with the Mujahideen. This helped generate a strong sense of xenophobia regarding anyone, who was not a member of the local population or not a Muslim. The Taliban therefore recruited men who saw them not only as a political force, but a holy one that would not only end the fighting with the will of God, but could restore the cultural and religious damage done by years of warfare waged for the hearts and minds of the Afghan people. Taking full advantage of the opportunity that was presented by the chaos, the Taliban began their offensive thanks to support from the Pakistani government. Pakistan saw the Taliban, many of whom had extensive combat experience fighting the Soviet army and later the factions at war with one another in the wake of their departure as an ideal security force for its own economic interests in Central Asia. Pakistani support was also inspired by the cultural and ethnic bonds of their people in the tribal zones along the internationally recognized border between the two nations. The majority of the Taliban militants were of the Pashtun people, who were primarily of the Sunni Muslim denomination. Across the border, Pashtuns constituted around 13% of the total population of Pakistan, but had significant influence in the military, and so were able to quickly drill up support for the Taliban. Pakistan supplied the Taliban with weapons and training, and in exchange, they helped secure the passage of Pakistani convoys through parts of Afghanistan that had come under the group's control to Turkmenistan, which had recently broken off from the former Soviet Union. Pakistan also provided significant financial aid to the Taliban movement, and this was more often than not in the guise of American dollars, which were kept close to the Taliban leadership in large metal cases that they could transport with them as they advanced outward. In the early days, the now beleaguered Rabani government extended a hand to the new Pashtun movement, believing they could be a key ally in combating opposing warlords. Despite emissaries from the Taliban meeting with Rabani in Kabul, the proposed alliance was not wholly compatible with their Pakistani benefactors' goals. And so, having to decide between the two, Omar decided to stick with Pakistan, and in doing so, eventually made an enemy of Rabani. Honoring their side of the agreement, on September 12, 1994, some 200 Taliban fighters attacked the border town of Spin Baldak, where goods from Pakistan were loaded onto Afghan trucks owned by warlords. In the ensuing battle, the Taliban captured the town losing just one man in the process before attacking a nearby weapons dump. It was the start of a campaign undertaken at almost lightning speed compared to previous groups' efforts, including Rabani's own forces. Almost fulfilling his prophecy, the Taliban under Omar achieved a string of victories in the wake of their formation, expanding outwards until by the end of 1994, they had occupied almost the entire Kandahar province. Pressing on, more of Afghanistan's 31 provinces continued to fall to his people. And by mid-1995, the Taliban had captured most of the country south of Kabul and were beating back against the warlords and tribal leaders who opposed them and the forces of President Rabani, who was reaching out to anyone in the international community that could help, whose many arms dealers that sprang up in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union Saw Afghanistan as an ideal market. One such arms dealer was Victor Bouts, who established a company in the United Arab Emirates to deal with the Rabani government, and he soon began ferrying weapons by air from Albania to Rabani's forces. Meanwhile, having captured several aircraft from Rabani's government left over from the days of the Soviet war, the Taliban brokered a deal with Pakistan for mechanics to return the aircraft to service. By the summer of 1995, a Taliban spokesman had proudly declared that they now had eight fast jet combat aircraft ready for combat in the ongoing war with their enemies, using mostly parts, weapons, and fuel found lying around Kandahar. The international community monitoring the situation in Afghanistan were dubious about such claims until August 3rd, 1995, when a cargo plane flown by a Russian company known as Airstan which was leased by Victor Bout to deliver his weapons, was intercepted by a Taliban MiG-21. The Russian plane with its crew of seven Russian nationals were ordered to land in Kandahar, where they were interned by the Taliban, who discovered a treasure trove of some 30 tons of weapons in the hold. The capture of Russian nationals by the Taliban sparked an international incident, and both Russian and American diplomats worked to secure their release. In an effort to win over the Taliban and hopefully secure their release, Victor Bout also arranged flights to Kandahar carrying clothes, foods, and electronic equipment for the Taliban. The Taliban did agree to allow the crew of the aircraft to carry out routine maintenance on it to keep it airworthy should a deal be brokered, but as the days turned to weeks and then months, it was looking increasingly unlikely. After over a year in captivity, the Russian crew had decided that enough was enough. And on August 16, 1996, they decided to make their escape attempts. While half their guard detail were undertaking afternoon prayers, they climbed on board their aircraft, started the engines and raced down the runway before lifting off and escaping to the UAE. It was a remarkable tale and one which had given the Taliban a great deal of attention from the world community but with events in the former Yugoslavia and Chechnya dominating the world's attention, Afghanistan was once again left largely to fight it out amongst themselves, save for a handful of brave international aid workers. Less than one month later, Omar, who had been decreed as the commander of the faithful by his followers, after he donned a cloak allegedly belonging to the prophet Muhammad himself, led his forces to triumph when they finally took the capital city, Kabul. Rabbani and his forces were all but beaten, holding only the northeast of the country, along with the Afghan-Tajikistan border. Regrouping what supporters he had left, he then worked to form alliances from many in his last holdouts, who would lose power and influence under total Taliban rule. This resulted in the Northern Alliance, which would spend the next five years waging an almost exclusively defensive war against the Taliban supported by countries such as India, Iran, Russia, and Turkmenistan, among others, who had an interest in countering either the Taliban or their Pakistani supporters, their hold on their territory would be continually eroded away as the fighting waged on in the Northeast of the country. Meanwhile, Omar went about attempting to legitimize his government in the eyes of the world, while simultaneously imposing his strict doctrine on his people. In September of 1996, he declared himself the leader of the new Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. But while Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the United Arab Emirates recognized the new nation, he struggled to gain recognition from the wider world. In an effort to promote his new Emirates, in July of 1999, he decreed that the Bamiyam Buddhas, a series of Buddhist statues dating back to the 6th century and a time when Buddhism still existed in Afghanistan, were to be protected. It had been feared that the Taliban would destroy them as part of their cultural cleansing of the country, but Omar sold this protection to his people on the basis that they could be used to generate income from foreign tourists. The statues that stood contrary to the Taliban's beliefs may have been spared, but for the ordinary people of Afghanistan, there was no such leniency for ideas and beliefs that challenged its authority. To the Taliban, ideas, especially foreign ideas were dangerous and in their eyes not the will of Allah and thus music, television, art, photography and the use of the internet were all forbidden. Public displays of destruction of the devices that were now illegal had eerie echoes of the burning of Jewish books in 1930s Germany as yet another war on the thoughts of people began to be waged. It was not enough to be a Muslim under the Taliban but instead you had to subscribe to their strictest interpretation of Islam and Sharia law. There was no tolerance for any form of dissent and anyone caught violating the will of the Taliban were accused of violating the will of Allah and severely punished for even the most minor of offenses. Even an accusation of being a homosexual, for example, something that was strictly forbidden, would spell a violent and painful end to one's life. Afghanistan's men therefore spent their lives having to prove themselves to the Taliban every minute of every day for fear of reprisal. For the women of Afghanistan, even worse was to come as the Taliban instigated what could be described as gender apartheid. Girls' schools all over the country were immediately shut down and professional women of any kind were barred from continuing to work. Even women's most basic human rights were curtailed as the female population now found itself effectively under house arrest, unable to leave their homes without the accompaniments of a male family member. Furthermore, women were forced to conceal themselves from the public at all times, their entire bodies being shrouded in the burqa with only a small metal mesh over the eyes for them to see. In some instances, houses even had their windows painted over so that none other than their husbands could ever see them unveiled. In one horrific incident, an elderly woman was brutally beaten with a metal cage until her leg was broken. Her crime was having her ankle accidentally uncovered as she walked. This restriction even extended to medical professions, which led to serious health issues for women during the early days of the Taliban regime, for a male doctor could not examine a female patient but at the same time, women were not allowed to train or practice in the medical profession. As such, women under the Taliban suffered from numerous medical conditions that were often life-threatening or life-altering that men could get treatment for. As with many populations throughout history who find themselves oppressed, many women under the Taliban were forced to go underground in an effort to get what they needed. Women trained in the most rudimentary of medical practices offered their services to their fellow women whenever they could, and often with clandestine help from friends and family overseas or some aid organizations. Additionally, secret schools were set up to teach girls to read and write, but the fear of discovery was always present, and the punishment for engaging in such activities was severe. For some women, it was too much, and fearing the spiritual consequences of suicide within the Islamic faith, they would attempt to flee to the Northern Alliance or one of Afghanistan's neighboring countries. They knew how dangerous this was, for as well as the fear of discovery and arrest, there was the fear of being killed by bandits or simply not surviving the arduous journey across inhospitable terrain. If they were arrested by the Taliban attempting such an escape, then they were often publicly stoned on the charge of committing adultery against their husbands. Many women still risked it, however, for they knew that regardless of whether they made it to freedom or were killed in the process, at least the suffering would be over. By the dawn of the 21st century, improvements in the miniaturization of camera technology meant that humanitarian agencies and anti-Taliban factions in Afghanistan were finally able to show the world what was happening in the country. Footage of women being driven in the back of pickup trucks and taken to sports stadiums where they were publicly beaten, flogged, and in many cases shot dead in front of jeering crowds, including children, shocked the world. But aside from token sanctions, nothing was done about it. In terms of the Western media's attention, and as a result, the Western people's own interest, the situations in Chechnya, where Russian forces were engaged in a brutal and bloody campaign to hold on to the breakaway republic, and the UN and NATO's efforts to clamp down on the ethnic cleansing taking place in the former Yugoslavia, overshadowed events in Afghanistan. Western intelligence services, on the other hand, were paying much closer attention to Afghanistan than most of their own people did. In the mid 90s, Afghanistan had become something of a beacon of hope to radical Islamic terrorist groups. It served as a symbol of what they saw as the faithful's first great victory over the Western non-believers they sought to destroy after their defeat of the Soviet army. Now with the Taliban largely in control, Afghanistan could be molded into the modern radical Islamic state and provide a base from which they could train their fighters to wage jihad against the ultimate prize, the United States and Israel. While numerous small groups had links with the Taliban or operated in Afghanistan, without doubt the most significant was the Al Qaeda terrorist network. The organization began to move much of its base of operations from Sudan and continental Africa where they were increasingly being clamped down upon by the US network, back to Afghanistan, where American influence was significantly weaker. There they could plot, prepare, and train for upcoming attacks against the West under the hospitality of the Taliban. What made Al-Qaeda a greater threat than most jihadi groups of the period was just how intricately woven the organization was in the global jihad campaign. While Al-Qaeda was relocating to Afghanistan, US intelligence made contact with an Al-Qaeda operative who wished to leave the organization and traded information for American protection. Under interrogation, this defector explained that its leader, Osama bin Laden, was now the head of a multifaceted global jihadi organization with a board of directors made up of the leaders of various groups, either allied to Al-Qaeda or having simply been absorbed by it. Western intelligence had been monitoring their one-time ally against the Soviets since 1989, including his return to Saudi Arabia, where he received a hero's welcome. However, his relationship with his homeland soon turned sour in the wake of Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in August of that year, and the Iraqi army's threatening of the Saudi kingdom. Bin Laden approached the Saudi royal family and offered to use his network of radical Islamic fighters to help defend Saudi Arabia from Saddam. However, King Fahd did something that was totally unthinkable to Bin Laden. He asked the United States and their Western allies for help. Bin Laden was outraged and left Saudi for Sudan, where he began consolidating his power and using his wealth to promote and support jihad against the non-believers and any Islamic government or agency who worked with them. In 1993, he publicly praised an attack on the World Trade Center in New York City after a truck laden with explosives was parked in the basement car park beneath the Twin Towers, the intention being to topple the immense buildings over with the blast. While the attack failed in this regard, six people were killed and over 1000 injured. But more than that, it shook the American people to the core as the attack was at the time, the worst terror attack on US soil in history. Bin Laden would not forget these facts. By the time Bin Laden arrived in Afghanistan in 1996, he had lost his Saudi citizenship for his support of terrorism. On assessing bin Laden's direct influence on the wave of Islamic terrorism in the 90s, Western intelligence analysts believed he was primarily functioning in the role of financier and promoter, but the defector to the West rebuffed this notion in 1996, stating that bin Laden was actively involved in the direct plotting and preparation of attacks. Bin Laden wasted no time in continuing his war against the West after reaching Afghanistan, And in August of 1996, the London-based Arabic newspaper Al-Quds Al-Arabi posted a 26-page document written by Bin Laden entitled The Declaration of War Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holy Places. This was Al-Qaeda's passing of an Islamic law outlining jihad against the US and its allies, a fatwa. In the fatwa, he outlined the crimes he accused the non-believers of committing against Muslims around the world, stating, quote, "'It should not be hidden from you "'that the people of Islam have suffered from aggression, "'iniquity, and injustice imposed upon them "'by the Zionist Crusaders Alliance "'and their collaborators, "'to the extent that the Muslims' blood became the cheapest "'and their wealth as loot in the hands of the enemies. "'Their blood was spilled in Palestine and Iraq, All of this and the world watch and hear and not only didn't respond to these atrocities, but also with a clear conspiracy between the USA and its allies and under the cover of the iniquitous United Nations, the dispossessed people were even prevented from obtaining arms to defend themselves. With the fatwa issued, Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda continued the recruitment and training of jihadists in Afghanistan. Yet, while Al-Qaeda frequently made mention of their links to Mullah Omar's government, claiming to function in a subservient manner to the government in Kabul after 1996, it seems that this was seldom the case. Even with Al-Qaeda aiding the Taliban in their cultural reformation of the country and the fighting against the Northern Alliance, the arrival of bin Laden in his newly formed country seemed to be causing Omar a great deal of trouble, Not only from the international community, but from within his own government, who questioned the wisdom of hosting a terrorist organization actively at war with the West, and the kind of attention that would bring when they were otherwise generally turning a blind eye to the Taliban. Perhaps recognizing the forces trying to influence Omar against him, and remembering his embarrassing withdrawal from Sudan, Bin Laden worked to keep Omar sweet whenever the opportunity presented itself. In 1997, Bin Laden used his organization's wealth and manpower to instigate projects such as building roads, schools, mosques, a dam, and even a large house for Omar's family in Kandahar province. Bin Laden delegated these projects to his subordinates, but through either mismanagement or lack of funds, which instead went to fund the global jihad. Many of these proved to be empty promises and were seldom fulfilled, which antagonized the local Afghan population, who saw many of these foreigners coming into their province and living relatively lavish lifestyles compared to their abject poverty. This resentment spread to many leaders in the Taliban, whose opposition was being charmed away by bin Laden and his wealth. And slowly, this resulted in many within the Taliban upper hierarchy being brought around to supporting Al Qaeda's international ambitions. On February 23rd, 1998, Bin Laden met with four other key Islamic terrorist organizations where they declared a second fatwa that authorized terrorists to kill indiscriminately Americans and Israelis. The five signatories identified themselves as the World Islamic Front for Jihad against Jews and Crusaders and declared the fatwa in opposition of what they saw as an ongoing American military occupation of Saudi Arabia and Iraq, and American support for Israel. Despite revoking his citizenship, the government in Saudi was particularly alarmed by what this could mean for its relationship with the United States. And so in June, 1998, Prince bin Faisal al-Saud, who was at the time head of the Saudi intelligence, traveled to Afghanistan to meet with Omar. The Saudi prince outlined his country's position on the matter of bin Laden demanding that either the Taliban expel him and Al Qaeda from their country, or alternatively hand him over to Saudi authorities, or there would be consequences concerning the relationship between the two nations. To sweeten the offer to Omar, the Saudis provided additional aid to Afghanistan, including 400 new four x four pickup trucks, which were used by Taliban forces to move troops and equipment across Afghanistan's harsh terrain in their fight against the Northern Alliance. Omar initially appeared receptive to the deal and with Saudi Arabia being one of the few countries to formally recognize his government, he knew he needed them on his side. However, by August, 1998, the talks had broken down. Upon learning of Tukri's demands, Bin Laden openly accused him of being an envoy of the Zionist crusaders he and his people were at war with. Meanwhile, in the US, the CIA, FBI, and the Pentagon were in the process of exploring plans to kidnap bin Laden in Afghanistan. The prevailing plan concerned hiring local Afghan mercenaries to capture bin Laden and then take him to a prearranged location out in the desert. There, a specially modified short takeoff and landing version of the C-130 Hercules cargo plane would land and exchange him for money. After Bin Laden was indicted to the US on charges of being linked to attacks on US troops in Somalia in the early 90s, the plan looked as though it would go ahead, but disagreements between the major players and concerns over what to do if something should go wrong, such as the Hercules being shot down, delayed the deployment order until finally it was shelved. Later, the US dropped the charges against Bin Laden for the attacks in Somalia. Now firmly established in Afghanistan under the Taliban, it was time for Bin Laden to carry out the spectacular headline-grabbing attack on America he had dreamed of for so long. After meticulous planning and preparation, on August 7th, 1998, the US embassies in Tanzania and Kenya were simultaneously attacked by truck bombs, which combined killed 60 people and injured more than 200 others. The attack was carried out by an Al-Qaeda affiliate group known as Egyptian Islamic Jihad, but it was suspected that it was orchestrated by Bin Laden, given that the date of the attack was the eighth anniversary of American forces arriving in Saudi Arabia to combat Saddam. This belief was confirmed when a Palestinian man by the name of Muhammad Sadiq Hawaida was arrested attempting to enter Pakistan with a false passport. Under questioning, he confirmed that he was a member of Al Qaeda's network of terrorists and he had been involved in the attack on the Nairobi embassy. In Washington, the Clinton administration began an intensive investigation using their vast intelligence network. They soon began to amass evidence that more attacks were in the pipeline and that Bin Laden was also attempting to acquire weapons of mass destruction in the form of chemical weapons to deploy against American population centers. Thus, Bin Laden was placed in the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And for the first time, the American people at large knew of the man who had declared jihad against them. He had seemingly finally achieved his ambition of hurting America in a spectacular fashion. And his position as the premier jihadist leader had been secured, but there was a price to pay. A week later, on August 14th, 1998, four U.S. Navy warships and one submarine cruising in the Arabian Sea began ejecting Tomahawk cruise missiles from their launchers. Once airborne, the missiles reconfigured themselves, extending their wings outward and flying north across Pakistani airspace before entering Afghanistan and attacking the training camps where U.S. intelligence believed a summit of top Al-Qaeda leaders was taking place, including bin Laden. Dubbed Operation Infinite Reach by the U.S., The goal was to simultaneously eradicate as much as Al-Qaeda's upper echelon as possible and destroy its ability to manufacture chemicals that could be weaponized. In the latter case, warships in the Red Sea also fired Tomahawk missiles at a site in El Shifa in Sudan, which was believed to be creating chemical weapons for Bin Laden. Both the training camps and al-Shifa took heavy damage in the attacks, with Taliban sources claiming 21 had been killed and many more injured, including civilians. Speaking to the American people, President Clinton outlined his administration's intentions with the attack, stating, our target was terror. Our mission was clear, to strike at the network of radical groups affiliated with and funded by Osama bin Laden perhaps the preeminent organizer and financier of international terrorism in the world today. The US judged the operation a success. However, Bin Laden not only survived, but his prestige in the world of Islamic terrorists was elevated with him seemingly having been spared by God to continue his jihad against the West. Furthermore, The damage on Al-Qaeda was nowhere near what the US hoped, as the majority of those being trained at the camp were actually Pakistanis, preparing to join the ongoing insurgency against India in the disputed Kashmir region. Protests against the strikes appeared in every major population center in Afghanistan, while Mullah Omar spoke out in public, personally attacking President Clinton over the strikes. Earlier in the week, Clinton had been forced to confess that he had been having an affair with Monica Lewinsky whilst in office. Omar accused the president of killing innocent people in Afghanistan to distract people in America from his shameful acts in office. Some in the Taliban went a step further and even accused Lewinsky of being an Israeli intelligence agent on account of her Jewish heritage, who was ordered to blackmail Clinton into attacking Afghanistan. Regardless, the Taliban hosting Al-Qaeda had, as some in Kabul had feared, brought the world's premier superpower knocking on their door for all the wrong reasons. But in that extraordinary week of 1998, Mullah Omar and the Taliban had a possibly more pressing emergency developing in the West. Less than 24 hours after bin Laden's attacks on US embassies, Taliban forces were embroiled in battle with the Northern Alliance in Mazar-e-Sharif, where Iran had a consulate. The Shia's revolutionary government in Iran had sympathized with the largely Shia Northern Alliance against the Pashtun Taliban, much to the latter's anger. Consequently, a number of Iranian truck drivers had been captured and held by the Taliban driving weapons and supplies to Northern Alliance groups. As Taliban forces encircled the consulate, a small group of them entered and killed 10 Iranian diplomats and a journalist. Omar claimed that the killers acted without authorization, but this did nothing to temper emotions in Iran's capital, Tehran, where the government of Ayatollah Khomeini warned of a great war about to engulf the region. Making good on this promise, the Ayatollah deployed some 200,000 troops to the border, backed up by tanks and aircraft. The UN swiftly began a diplomatic effort between Iran, the Taliban, and Pakistan, who Iran was claiming had deployed combat aircraft in support of Omar's forces. This was the first time Mullah Omar had spoken to anyone from the UN who wasn't Pakistani. And in the eyes of many observers, The talks were seen as the first recognition of the Taliban as the legitimate government in Afghanistan. If not officially, then certainly practically. UN negotiations managed to avoid military action by Iran and achieved the release of 45 of the captured truck drivers and the bodies of the dead diplomats for burial. However, efforts to improve relations between Kabul and Tehran failed, leading to a ramping up of support for the Northern Alliance who began receiving vehicles and even helicopters from Iran and Russia. In a bizarre twist in the story of world politics, therefore, the Taliban had managed to achieve something few others around the world could, and that was essentially putting Iran and the United States on the same page regarding their attitudes toward Afghanistan. At the same time, other governments were keeping a close eye on Afghanistan, which was increasingly looking as though it was a threat to nearly everyone with the Taliban's links to terrorism. Unable to guarantee their safety, the UN began pulling aid workers and diplomats out of Afghanistan after an Italian military officer was shot dead and a French journalist wounded in Kabul. Unfortunately, it was the Afghan people who suffered most by this decision. For often, it was the only humanitarian and medical help they could get. Aside from Al-Qaeda and the Pakistani groups fighting in Kashmir, other terrorist groups who made a base camp in Afghanistan included the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, who waged a terrorist campaign in neighboring Central Asian countries. Other smaller groups with more focused ambitions, like establishing independent Islamic states in countries where Muslim majority populations were being oppressed, like China, had also found a home there. It seemed that by the dawn of the year 2000, the Taliban's Afghanistan was at the forefront of an impending wave of Islamic fundamentalism about to sweep across the world. It was the world's training camp for Islamic fundamentalist terrorists, but it was not going unnoticed. By the year 2000, Afghanistan was lost in the diplomatic wilderness having been shunned by virtually every major country in the world for their housing and support of terrorist groups. Only their old ally, Pakistan, which itself had become an international pariah following its nuclear weapons program in the late 90s, continued to offer significant support. This only reinforced the view that many Afghans had of the outside world, that it was there to destroy them and their way of life particularly with how the country was portrayed in Western media over their treatment of women. This was especially perplexing to the Taliban who couldn't understand why the world viewed them so harshly regarding women. From their ideological perspective, they were actually protecting women, both spiritually and physically from harm in a poor country ravaged by warfare. Regarding the question of education, Omar eventually recognized that some education was necessary for women, And in Kabul, there was a girl's school that taught a select few from age seven upwards. And eventually women were also allowed to train as medical professionals so they could work in female sections of gender segregated hospitals. But neither of these were universal across the whole of Taliban controlled Afghanistan. The problem with viewing the Taliban in this period is that it is unfair to compare them to a Western government with federal authority over smaller local governments who deal directly with their people. Instead, the Taliban government was more of a cooperative affair with tribes and factions agreeing to work with Omar towards his political goals. But these goals were not laws. So while some girls were given basic education in Kabul, the very notion of this happening out in the countryside was dismissed out of hand. Consequently, by 2000, the Taliban found that cracks were beginning to appear in the harmony of the organization. The Taliban's requirements for more and more men to leave their communities to fight against the Northern Alliance quickly bred resentment, as did the Taliban's taxations, both of which sapped local economies and undermined local leaders. Omar always blamed a lack of money and foreign aid that was withheld by the international community, much of the country's hardship. And so when on January 13th, in the year 2000, Taliban guards stole the equivalent of 200,000 US dollars from the treasury they were supposed to be guarding, the country's economy came to a shuddering halt for several days. This only further hurt the ordinary Afghans, but organized opposition outside of the fighting up north and the remaining gangs of bandits was few and far between. The Taliban's hand reached into every corner of the country, either through their followers or their religious police, who cracked down brutally on even the most minor infraction of the ways in which the Taliban dictated the people should live. To openly voice dissent was to invite a terrible punishment on the culprit and their family. But Omar had already demonstrated that his grip on his forces was nowhere absolute, a situation worsened by a mass influx of foreign fighters into the country, each with their own ideology and political aims. And even after he issued orders for Northern Alliance prisoners not to be killed in an effort to temper the international community, massacres continued unabated. Whether he supported the killings of men and boys and the raping of women and girls in the North was irrelevant for the fact remains that at times, Taliban forces were completely out of control. Amar found himself in a position that had plagued many leaders in Kabul preceding him. His Kabul-centric viewpoint and his efforts to liaise with the international community led to faction leaders out in the countryside, accusing him of losing sight of the true Afghan way of life. Nevertheless, he remained relatively unchallenged. On February 6, 2000, the plight of the civilian population under the Taliban was briefly thrust into the world spotlight again when two brothers, Ali and Mohammed Safi, led a group of nine men who proceeded to hijack a Boeing 727 belonging to Afghanistan's national airline. The aircraft was on an international flight between Kabul and Mazar-e-Sharif, but once the hijackers had taken control, they ordered the pilots to instead fly to the United Kingdom, where they landed at Stansted Airport after two refueling stops, including one in Moscow. The hijacking ended on February 10th when the men were arrested by British authorities. During questioning, the men explained that they had taken this dramatic and dangerous step in order to escape the Taliban regime. And while convicted criminals, it was agreed by a British court that extraditing them back to Afghanistan was a violation of their human rights, as it would certainly Be akin to torture and death in the wake of the hijacking more attention was paid on the taliban's treatment of the people under its control and its links to islamic extremism later that year the country was hit by a serious drought that threatened thousands of afghan lives but despite appeals from the taliban to the international community for aid only a trickle of what was needed came through as the prevailing belief was that it would mostly be pilfered by the taliban for themselves or that the aid workers would be taken hostage, as happened when a group of Western teachers were arrested and accused of promoting Christianity. Meanwhile, the war with the Northern Alliance waged on, and in July, the Taliban launched a fresh summer offensive against their old enemies, north of Kabul. This included a number of Soviet-era tanks and aircraft, yet they proved unable to make any significant gains, And so in July, they launched another offensive to the Northeast of the capital city. Their primary objective was to cut off the Northern Alliance's supply lines from Tajikistan. And this saw indiscriminate bombing of civilian population centers suspected of being loyal to their enemy. Some 150,000 Afghan refugees took the dangerous path of attempting to flee to Tajikistan to escape the bombing. In response, the UN placed more and more sanctions on Afghanistan and thus becoming more and more isolated from the international community. Omar saw no further reason to protect the Bamiyan Buddhas and on February 26, 2001, he had them destroyed. The world looked on at Afghanistan as a near medieval country now totally out of control. But again, the Western population viewed the situation as someone else's problem. How could it possibly impact them in any significant way? That was still the prevailing thought on one relatively normal Tuesday morning in New York City, September 2001.